Well, good morning. Thank you for the kind invitation to come and be with you this weekend. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to see uh, your beautiful town, your beautiful church, and spend time with uh, Raymond and his family and some other members of the church so far, and so I'm grateful for that. I should say, uh, I could spend a lot of time here telling stories about Raymond, I will refrain from that, uh, but I do remember the first time I met Raymond. So I was finishing up college, uh, by the grace of God, and uh, at Auburn University, I must say, and um, Raymond came to my home church, Mexi Baptist Church, where I was baptized when I was 15, and where my parents and several grandparents are still members, and preached. I, I was finishing up college. Raymond was like a first or maybe year seminary student, and... Um, I remember thinking, ah, that guy can shuck the corn, you know, so I, I don't know if, if you guys say that up here. Uh, we say that in Alabama, and, uh, but I, I thought, well, he's, a, he's a, good, a good preacher, and we certainly uh, could not have imagined where the Lord would take either of us, uh, but in God's kindness, he's taken us to some places together, and I uh, cherish that. I'm grateful to God for that. And certainly, I uh, am grateful for this invitation to just spend some time with you guys this morning. You can turn in your copy of God's Word, if you have, uh, have it with you today, to the book of James, chapter 5. In the book of James, chapter 5. Now, have you ever encountered a situation in your life that really pushed you towards... A season of praying with great intensity, and uh, perhaps you, you've prayed in, in a way during this season for something, uh, just in a way that you never have before. Perhaps it's when a loved one is sick, uh, maybe you have a decision to make in your life, or maybe you have something that you just really desire. Maybe you want a spouse or a child or a job, and so you're driven towards a season of prayer that just has a particular intensity to it. Can you think about perhaps what that season has been for you for a moment? I think for me, as I reflect back on my life, it, unquestionably the sort of greatest season of prayer uh, that I've had, it, it was in response to uh, finding out that my daughter, who was five at the time, had an eye condition that had left her legally blind in one eye. Uh, we were taken off guard by this, and so there, uh, there was just great prayer in response to it. Right? That's what Christians do in response to a situation like this. There's prayers trying to make sense of it all. There's prayers about uh, how you should move forward. There's prayers for Diagnosis, there's prayers for treatments, there's prayers for recovery. And by God's grace, she's doing much better, but we continue to pray for her full healing for that to this day, almost three years or so later. But if I'm being straight with you, uh, there, there are elements of what I prayed for that God didn't seem to answer, at least not in the way that I had prayed for him. Uh, there are aspects of that that when I look back on, I well, I'm, I'm grateful 
for what you did answer, but there are parts of it that uh, he didn't answer the way that I would have wished. And so we all have seasons like this. We're all driven to extraordinary prayer, and hopefully we have just an ordinary prayer life as well. And we believe that God's Word, when it says that prayer is powerful, but you ever just ask, am I doing it right? You know, is, am I praying in a way that's effective? Am I reaching the Lord? And so uh, this morning, I, I just want us to spend some time here in the book of James um, studying a few verses of Scripture that I believe can help us to think about how we can come to the Lord uh, and pray effectively. I'm going to read for it, read it, and then pray for us, uh, and we'll continue. The book of James, chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Heavenly Father, we know that you are powerful. And Lord, in your kindness, you hear our prayers when we call out to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. And so we ask that by your Spirit, you would open our hearts this morning as we approach your word, that we may hear from you, and that we may know what you have to say, and that we may, as a result, be those who are more committed to coming before you. God, help us. Help me. Be with us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Now, we are here in the book of James, the letter of James, and if I was a New Testament scholar like Raymond, I would say that this is what's called a diaspora letter. It's a letter that's written from the Jewish population there in, uh, right around Jerusalem in the area of Judea to churches that are filled with Jewish Christians, but outside of that immediate area around Jerusalem. And this letter, uh, which is, is not long, uh, but it addresses a number of issues of just faith and life that these early Christians are having to deal with. And it's notable uh, that the author of the letter is James. Right? Now, we know that James is, is one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church. Uh, he's also uh, the brother of our Lord and this is a total aside, but I've always thought that if you, if you need an argument for the divinity of Jesus, it's got to be the fact that his brother, someone who you know, saw everything that we see about our siblings, was willing to pray to him as God. Uh, that's pretty remarkable to me. Uh, but James, the, the, the brother of our Lord, he, he was known, he was a well-known figure within the early church. Uh, he was called James the Just or James the Righteous, as one of his nicknames, uh, by both those within and without, uh, or those within the church and those outside of the church, because of his character. But he, he also had another nickname. He 
uh, he was known as Old Camel Knees. Now, Old Camel Knees, yeah. Uh, I think that oftentimes preachers, teachers get nicknames. I don't, you can tell me later uh, what your nickname is for Raymond. But this is a, a peculiar nickname, Old Camel Knees. It doesn't seem all that flattering at first. But we know uh, from some historical records from the early church that he, he was called this because he was said to have actually developed calluses on his knees for praying. And so just as a camel who would frequently kneel on a hard surface would have very rough calloused knees, uh, James either had literal calluses or had developed, at least in the minds of church members, metaphorical calluses due to his frequent prayer. And so it makes sense that when he writes a letter like this to churches, he will address the issue of prayer several times in the letter. I'll read to you just a a comment that Eusebius, one of the historians from the early church, uh, wrote about him. He said that, He alone, talking about James, was permitted to enter into the holy place. For he wore not woolen but linen garments, and he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. So, this record from the early church, it's, of course, makes sense that he would include this message to us on prayer. Now, for some of you, uh, you may be like James, and you have developed calluses uh, around your prayer life because you're so faithful and fervent in your prayer. Uh, just the other day, we, we purchased a home in November, and course, we've got the, the list. Or let me rephrase that. My wife has a list of all the things that, that needs to happen at our house, and one of the, the jobs is that we, we, we needed to have some type of French drain put in our backyard because the people that lived there before us had just had some pavers that were used to drain water, and we have two young kids that like to play in the yard, and it just seemed like a trip to the emergency room waiting to happen, and so uh, we got an estimate. This is what it would take to have a company come in and install this drain, and I looked at the estimate and said, I don't think that we're going to do that. Uh, And so after, you know, uh, watching some YouTube videos and going to Home Depot a couple of times, I I was ready to install this drain, which requires a good bit of digging. And I can dig, but the the truth is that my hands, uh, which at points in my life have been hardened with calluses, are now pretty used to keyboards and cell phones and uh, things that aren't quite as, uh, as, as prone to rub calluses. And so I used my shovel. I, I, I dug the trench that I needed to dig. And of course, if you come, I can show you where those blisters are healing. I just don't have calluses like that. And for many of us, and, and I would put myself in this uh, bucket, we're still forming Right? In our prayer life, we're still forming those hardened calluses. And we hope to one day be like James, but we're not there yet. 
And I think that uh, whether or not we have a great deal of experience in prayer, most of us feel like this, right? I, I, I don't, I've never really met someone, even though I know that there are people who are fantastic at praying, I've never met someone who's like, yeah, I've made it. I, I don't need to grow. I'm where I need to be. So most of us feel like this. We're still forming our calluses. Uh, but thankfully, God's Word has things to teach us uh, about this. And so as we walk through this passage, there are three kind of big lessons that I want us to draw out of this text. First, <clears throat> I want us to see that healthy Christian community empowers effective praying. So that was a mouthful, so I'll say it again. Healthy Christian community empowers effective praying. If we look back at the first part of verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the overall context of this portion of James' letter has to do with how Christians ought to live together and with one another in the context of a church. I just prior to this, we see elders giving elders being given instructions on how to pray for healing. Uh, just at the end of this passage that we're covering, you see some instructions on how you restore an erring brother or sister. And so the overall context is one of the well-being of the church. And I think it's, it's often the case that we are so used to living in a world uh, where we think about ourselves as individuals uh, that we think of prayer as just vertical, right? It's something that I do between me and the Lord. It involves myself and God. And while that's very true, right, in, in God's grace, we can pray as individuals before God, there is a communal aspect to it. There, there's uh, an aspect of it that's horizontal and not just vertical. Uh, God deals with us as individuals, but He also deals with us corporately as part of a Christian community. And I think James is making clear here that it's within a healthy church context that prayers are, are effective. And part of that context includes both the confession of sin and prayers for one another. As I was reflecting on this, I, I became convinced that we, at least I, have too often separated what God has brought together, right? The confession of sin and prayer. Christians have known this for a long time. If you look back at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it defines prayer like this. It says, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. And so you see confession and prayer. Now, uh, I must admit, I, I have very little knowledge of you. I, I'm, I'm a visitor. I don't know much about the prayer life of your church. I don't know much about your prayer life as individuals. But I can recount from my own experience numerous prayer meetings that I've been a part of. I've, I can recount prayer meetings that I've led. There was one church that I was serving at where uh, I, I was charged with leading the Wednesday night prayer meetings, and the senior pastor, he, he said, uh, you know, you're still learning everybody's name. 
I'm just going to take this sheet of paper and I'll write down where everybody will sit. And that way, when you're calling on people to pray, you'll be able to have their name. Right? Because for years, they'd come on Wednesday night and sat in the same seats and, and, and done the same thing. So we didn't have to walk in there and he could tell me uh, where everyone would be with a seating chart. And so I've been in lots of prayer meetings and I'm grateful for all that I've been in. I'm grateful for the prayers that I've received, that my family's received, and I'm sure you are too. But I do wonder if um, those meetings could have perhaps been more effective uh, and been more of a, a contributor to the spiritual vitality of that church if there had been some confession of sin within that context. Could it be that while there was great commitment to meet and pray week after week, year after year, that there was an element that was missing? I, I can't help but wonder if in conjunction with those ongoing prayer meetings, I'd been part of some where we confessed our sins to one another and received prayer for one another on a regular basis. I have to ask the question, what uh, personal battles against sin would have been won? What lives would still be intact? Commenting on this passage, John Calvin writes this. He says, He connects mutual prayer with mutual confession, by which he intimates that confession avails for this end, that we may be helped as to God by the prayers of our brethren. For they who know our necessities are stimulated to pray that they may assist us. But they to whom our diseases are unknown are more tardy to bring us help. Put more simply, people can't pray for you if they don't know where your weaknesses are, right? They don't know where you're struggling. They, they don't know to pray for you there. Now, again, I'm not your pastor, and so I'm not going to give real specific advice and complicate things for your elders. Um, I'll keep my application to the public confession of sin to a minimum, uh, and I'll let your elders uh, handle that. But my hope for you, right, and what I will encourage you to, is that uh, you would at least cultivate deep Christian friendships where you feel the freedom and encouragement to ask for prayer as you confess sin. Um, if you have these types of relationships where you can say, hey, I'm, I'm not just going to ask you to pray for this job interview, but I'm going to ask you to pray for the laziness that I'm trying to overcome in my life. Or I won't just you know, ask you to pray for a surgery that I have to have, but I'll also ask you to pray for the sin that I'm struggling to overcome. I mean, we will be stronger right, as a result of that. Uh, in, in his book, Life Together, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who was offering some reflections based on this uh, community of, of students that he had gathered during all the <clears throat> travails associated with World War II, he writes about how sin tries to isolate. He says this, Sin demands to have a man by himself 
It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And I've certainly seen this to be true for, for Christians. Uh, you, you have an internship program. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this if you're seeking to go into ministry. I, I've had some of the most, or some of the, the most difficult conversations with people who were in ministry and they felt because of their position, uh, they couldn't confess a sin to anyone. That for years, uh, they struggled and it led to them leaving, uh, leading essentially a double life because they felt because of their position, they could never confess a sin to anyone. Don't let yourself get like that. Don't let yourself get into that position. Confession of sin brings down those walls of isolation, and it allows for God's grace right, to wash over those now exposed parts of your life. It's a gospel community that can do that, but only if they know. Bonhoeffer again says this, he says, Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is an, <clears throat> is an ignominy that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man does a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. And so, while it's painful, it's by God's grace that oftentimes the support that we receive from our Christian brothers and sisters that actually allows us to persevere. And so ask yourself this, when, when was the last time that I actually named a sin that I'm dealing with to a brother or sister so that they could pray for me? When, when did you name something? We all believe that we still have sin, right? When was the last time you named that sin? And on the other side of that, James clearly tells us to pray for one another, right? Like that's the response, is to pray for one another. It's not to share. It's to pray for one another. And so are we the kinds of brothers and sisters in Christ who a friend can confess a sin to? Are we the kind of brothers and sisters in Christ who are faithful to pray for one another when that happens? And I've found that if someone asks you to pray, the time to do it is right then. Because if you're like me, you you may forget. So very practically, I would just say, when someone asks you to pray for them, pray for them right then. Uh, don't delay. Um, again, Bonhoeffer says that it, it is, in fact, the most normal thing in the common Christian life to pray together. But I think we could also say that it's the most normal thing in the common Christian life to pray for one another. And that happens in the context of a healthy Christian community that empowers effective praying. You know, moving on through the passage, I think that when most of us read this, there's one sort of phrase in here that strikes us uh, as perhaps the most interesting. When we, we get to the end of verse 16 when it reads, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
right? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If you're like me, you kind of have the KJV version of this ringing in your head where it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's, it's one of those lines in the KJV that I'll, I'll never be able to, to, to uh, supplant with a more modern version. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I, if we pray, right, if, if we're someone who prays, what we certainly want is for our prayers to availeth much. I mean, nobody wants to waste time in prayer, right? That's not the goal. You want your prayers to be effective. And if our prayers can't be effective, then we want to know whose prayers are effective so we can go to that person and get them to pray for us. And so what does this mean? What does it mean that it's the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man that's going to avail us much? Well, I think it actually is telling us that it's everyday Christians that pray effective prayers. It's everyday Christians that pray effective prayers. And so, how am I getting this from that? Well, I believe when James is telling us that it's a righteous person whose prayers are effectual, he's not pointing to a certain class or a certain type of Christian. Uh, He's not pointing to someone who possesses some super spiritual capacity. I think that's evident in verse 17 when he points to Elijah and he says, Elijah was the man with a nature like ours. He's just a man with a nature like ours. Now, on the one hand, you're like, really, James, you point out Elijah? That's the guy that you want to point to as, as your righteous man? He doesn't seem like a natural choice if you're going for someone who's kind of middle of the road. Uh, Elijah, he's the hero, right, in the first century as you're getting up to the time of Christ. He is uh, the guy that you would look to uh, in the Old Testament. He, he's the one that they're expecting to return. Right? What do they ask John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? So Elijah is one of those heroes. Uh, he's well attested in the Old Testament. He confronts the murderous regime of Ahab and Jezebel. He defeats, humiliates, and slaughters the prophets of Baal. He does miracles at points. He's used mightily by God to shake the Israelites from their idolatry as they worshipped Baal. And my goodness, I mean, he appears with Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration. And if that was not enough, he didn't even die, right? I mean, he's taken to heaven in a whirlwind. But James tells us he's a man with a nature like ours. Well, who wants to be compared to this guy? You know, James didn't point this out. He highlights his likeness to it and, and likeness to us. And if we look at the full story of Elijah, if we don't just focus on the good, but we also read other parts, we see that in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah's life is threatened by Jezebel, he fled in fear of this queen. 
I mean, here's a man who uh, has just humiliated the prophets of Baal. And yet, it says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And so, you've got Elijah, and he's demonstrated this unbelievable power of God. I mean, he's just slaughtered the prophets of Baal. And I'm thinking, if I had done this, I mean, you wouldn't tell me nothing, right? I'm not running from anybody, much less Jezebel. But he runs and despairs even for his life. Because, turns out, he's just a person like us got a nature just like ours. It's not demigods that pray effective prayers. It's not superhumans that pray effective prayers. It's everyday Christians that pray effective prayers. It's righteous men and women who pray effective prayers. So let's look at this word righteous for a minute. Sometimes I think that word makes us uncomfortable. Righteous. What, is he, what does he mean here by righteous? We, we oftentimes just kind of automatically go to self-righteous, and none of us want to be self-righteous. It has uh, the negative connotations. We also recognize as good Protestants, right, we're, we're quick to say that our, our own good works are as filthy rags, that there's no real righteousness on our own. We could never do enough to truly be considered righteous, So what is he saying here? Well, we have to remember, James was known as James the Just or James the Righteous. And so there's a way of making sense of of what he can mean here. And I think that the best way to do it is to to consider that what what James is saying by this word righteous uh, is that if we want our prayers to be effective, uh, that we must possess a practical righteousness that's grounded in a positional righteousness. So we must possess a practical righteousness that's grounded in a positional righteousness. So what do I mean by that? Let me start with the positional righteousness. First off, uh, for someone to be considered righteous in any real meaningful Christian sense, they must possess a right standing before God, right? And that's what I mean by a, a positional righteousness. Someone who has a positional righteousness has confessed of their sins, They've put their faith in Christ, and God has uh, looked upon them and not held their sin to their account, but He has looked upon Christ's righteousness, and He's applied that to their account. And so any effective praying is going to come from a position of being positionally righteous because you're in Christ. That's the only way for a sinner like you and a sinner like me to actually gain a right standing before God so that He could hear our Prayers. And so, praying effective prayers actually begins with being reconciled to God through faith in Christ. He's the one who gave himself on the cross as a substitute for our sins on our account. He's the one who was raised on the third day in triumph, and there's no possible righteousness that we can possess apart from our being united with him by faith. And so, 
my admonition to you is that if you want to pray effective prayers first, you must be reconciled to the Father through Christ. And so if you're here and you've never repented of your sin and and trusted in Christ and you want to know how to pray effective prayers, I'd say, well, you're probably asking the wrong question. The first question is, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is trust in Christ. You know, I do think that God in His mercy sometimes hears the prayers of non-believers. I do think that's the case. In His mercy, He sometimes hears the prayers of non-believers. But He's not obligated to, right? He's not obligated to listen to someone who is not in a right standing before Him. But He's obligated. And He delights in hearing the prayers of His children. One of the things about being a parent that I just find amazing is that, you know, you don't have to try to be able to, to pick your kid's voice out of a crowd. You know this? I mean, I remember my daughter being born. and I, I don't know how, but you just know. I, I know her cry. When she was a baby, you could have put her in a room with 100 babies, you know, got them all crying, and I think you could have blindfolded me and I would have walked straight to her. You're just tuned in to the cry of your child. We can have kids playing at the house, and of course somebody, you know, falls down and stubs their knee, and I don't have to see anything to know whether I need to get up off the couch or whether my buddy over there does. Because I know if it's my daughter who's hit the ground and has let out a cry. I, I just recognize her voice. And that's the case when it comes to our Father in heaven. He's tuned in to the prayers of his children. How much more, even than we are as earthly fathers, is he to be eager to listen to the prayers of those who call him father? So praying effective prayers begins with our being righteous before him, positionally righteous, put back into that relationship with God. But I I, I do think that James means something a little beyond that here, uh, I think that he is speaking to uh, what I'm just calling a practical righteousness. Uh, and this is something that characterizes those who have re- repented of their sins, trusted in Christ, and become part of a covenant community. Uh, but then also they're walking in imperfect but faithful obedience to God. I don't think righteousness here it means perfection. It just means walking in a general pattern of faithful obedience to God's command. It means not living with unrepentant sin, with abiding sin in your life. I do think that we can be children of God, but if we are in a pattern of sin, that may cause Him to not hear our prayers in quite the same way. He still hears them, but He may not be as attentive to him as he would, as he would otherwise be. Uh, Isaiah writes this, he said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. We consider the words of the psalmist in Psalm 66, 18. 
when he says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If you look at 1 Peter 3.7, it gives a warning to husbands, right? To, to live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers wouldn't be hindered. Or in the book of Proverbs in 15.29, when it says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And so there is a real sense uh, that if we are faithfully confessing our sins and walking in obedience, uh, that God is uh, promised right, to give great attention to what we lay before Him in prayer. One pastor put it like this. He says, if you are confessed up and walking with Christ, your prayers are spiritual dynamite, especially as they are offered for your needy brothers and sisters in Christ. And so again, what James is encouraging us to is not perfection and it's not superhuman spirituality. It's that the prayers of a righteous person, an everyday ordinary Christian who's walking imperfectly but walking towards Christ nonetheless, can have great power as they pray. That those are the prayers that will availeth much. Maybe some of you know the, the story of Hudson Taylor the great uh, missionary who, who went to China and who spent over 50 years establishing what came to be known as the China Inland Mission. Uh, Taylor's efforts are, are heroic, and he, he was known to be a great man of prayer, and he accomplished some great things. He brought over 800 missionaries to China. Uh, he began 125 schools in China, and uh, he was responsible, uh, in a humanly perspective, for the conversion of about 18,000 Chinese converts. And there's a story from, from Hudson Taylor that he was, he was visiting America, and he was uh, preaching, and he was raising money for the China Inland Mission, and he, he came across this young man, and this young man told him, Hudson Taylor, I, I would love to be a missionary. I feel called of God to be a missionary, but Mr. Taylor, I can't preach. I can't get up in front of people. I just, I just can't do it. And Taylor asked him, he said, well, can you pray? And this young man, who I'm sure was probably a bit confused, said, yes, I can pray. I know how to pray. And Taylor said, well, I want you to come back to China with me because we need more prayers. We've already got a lot of preachers. We need more prayers. And so this man agreed to join Taylor, and he, he went back and became a part of the China Inland Mission, and it said that uh, he, he had a, a small home that was near a pathway, and he would spend hours a day praying for the souls of these Chinese. And as they walked by, uh, many people could, could hear the, uh, the great uh, prayers that he was praying, the groans as he interceded. Uh, the cries, the, they could tell that he was weeping for them. And so many who walked by, they were intrigued by this, and they would come to this man and they would ask him to, to give them give counsel and wisdom and, and pray for them. And actually through this man who couldn't preach, but he could pray, uh, he was said to have had a more powerful ministry than all the preachers that Hudson Taylor brought over. The, the prayer of a righteous person 
has great power as it is working. And so let's not doubt God's commitment to answer the prayers of His children, of everyday Christians who can pray powerfully. Um, A final thing that I want to point out of this passage comes from verses 17 and 18. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So my final point is this. Effective prayers demonstrate the power of God. Effective prayers demonstrate the power of God. James is referencing this story that comes from the midst of this knockdown, drag-out fight that Elijah is having with Ahab and Jezebel. They were uh, awful monarchs of Israel, and they were seeking to, to root out the worship of Yahweh and replace it with the worship of Baal. And if you're familiar with the story, you'll remember that uh, towards the beginning, Ahab con- <clears throat> is confronted by Elijah, and Elijah tells him, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then the rain cuts off. And for over three years, it didn't rain in all of the land of Israel because of uh, the sin of God's people and their idolatry. And the famine became so great that King Ahab was actually searching for a patch of grass to try to keep some of his animals alive when Elijah confronts him again. And Elijah tells him, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And on the seventh he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. It was this prayer of Elijah that brought back this rain that would heal this dry and thirsty land that was parched and stinking with death because it had been three and a half years since it had rained. See, Ahab and Jezebel, they had all the power in worldly terms. This was the king and the queen. They had the army. They had the money. They had the position. They had the status. But they couldn't make it rain. They couldn't bring healing to the land. It's all of the authority of an absolute monarch pales in comparison to the power of one prayer, of one despised prophet when it's in the will of God. God delights, delights to demonstrate His power through prayer. Perhaps you've heard of the Fulton Street prayer meeting uh, and revival that happened around 1857-1858. But if not, uh, you'll be astonished at what's happened before, even in our own country in response to prayer. It was the late summer in 1857 when a man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere 
had the idea to get businessmen together on Wednesdays at the noon hour to pray during their lunch break. He had been charged with trying to bring some revitalization to the old Dutch church in New York City, and he wasn't having a lot of success, so he thought, well, maybe the businessmen would just love a chance to pray in the middle of the week. And so he started sending out flyers that read, prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock, stop 5, 10, or 20 minutes, or the whole hour, as your time admits. Now, when the first Wednesday came, uh, he was the only one there. And he waited about a half hour until finally at 12.30, six men showed up. They engaged in some prayer. It was certainly nothing uh, to write home about. It was a, a pretty ordinary prayer meeting. But they did decide that they would meet again the next week. And the next meet, the next week, 20 men came. The next week, 40 men came. So he decided that they would meet in a larger room. Uh, and then, as it grew in popularity, they decided to make it a, a daily event. And in a short time, uh, this meeting on Fulton Street uh, had taken over the whole building so that it was a regular occurrence that over 3,000 people were meeting to pray at noon. Now this impulse to pray began spreading from coast to coast. And within about six months, uh, 10,000 businessmen, businesswomen, various sorts, were gathering on a daily basis in New York City. It had about 800,000 in terms of population at that time. And 10,000 every day were gathering to pray. And by... January of 1858, there were at least 20 other prayer meetings going on in the city. Uh, newspapers began carrying stories about this, right? There were, uh, <clears throat> there were stories like one man who had come into the prayer meeting and, and he was getting ready to go uh, actually murder a woman and, and, and then himself, but he, he listened to someone delivered this prayer uh, and then this exhortation urging the duty of repentance and he repented of his sins and trusted Christ. There were stories like these abounded. And, of course, there were many who would come to New York City and they would attend this prayer meeting and they would be moved and they, they would then be burdened that their city would experience something like this. In fact, one of the six original men who were there to pray uh, was from Philadelphia and he thought, why not a prayer meeting in Philadelphia? So he arranged that and of course, it was a pretty dismal start. About 40 came. They moved to a different building to try to get more centrally located. They had about 60, but they couldn't seem to break over about 60. And then suddenly, in, in March of 1858, 300 people showed up to pray. By March 10th, they had 2,500 praying. They had seats everywhere. After that, they never had less than 3,000 while this was occurring that showed up to pray. They eventually erected a tent, and it was said that within about four months, 15,000 different people from Philadelphia had come 
to pray. There were meetings springing up at other parts, and it was estimated that just in Philadelphia, there were 10,000 conversions related to that prayer meeting. One particular denomination gained 3,000 new members. If you're like me, it's hard to even conceive of something like that happening. I have to challenge myself to believe that God can still work right in such ways. But just like Isaiah said, the Lord's hand is not shortened. Not at all. We serve a God who can do so much more than we even ask or imagine. He delights. He delights in bringing glory to Himself by answering prayer and by demonstrating His power as ordinary Christians like you and like me. Bring our request before Him. Friends, Elijah, he was just a man with a nature like ours. But he was able to bring about mighty things through prayer. Our Lord tells us, ask, and it will be given. Seek, right? and we will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to us. And so my hope and my exhortation this morning is that we would not be a people who have not because we ask not. But that with confidence we would draw near to God and that we would pray, knowing that our prayers with a God like we serve, will availeth much. Because God loves to demonstrate His power and His glory and His might as He answers our prayers to build up His kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before You, Lord, knowing that Your arm is not short. Lord, You can do all and much more that we can ask or imagine. Lord, you've done many things. You've done many wonderful things. And God, we ask that you would do those things again. Lord, we know that if you wanted to save 10,000, you could do it. And so, God, we pray that your spirit would come forth, that you would give us visions that are God-sized, visions to pray for things that people would look and say, only God could do that. Only God could make that happen. Lord, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Give us a zeal to come before you, to make your name great. Lord, I pray specifically for the uh, people of this church, Lord, that you would give them a heart to pray for the conversion of many and for uh, the blessings of many that uh, people would know in Westchester, that this church has prayed mightily and God has answered mightily. And that everything's different because God has shown up. Lord, we know that you can do that and we pray that you would. In Christ's name, amen. Will you please stand with us as we stand?